Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 530. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I've, uh, I've, <laughs> I've got some news. <laughs> Guess what I've bought? Coming today. Two beehives. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't even told the wife yet. I've got to, I've got to cross that hurdle. I've got to work something out. It's for the environment, love. The honey will be lovely flowing. Oh, man. Spur the moment. I want to get... Fuck it. I haven't got a clue what to tell her. You know what I mean? I've just... I've got this... I want... There's something inside us, you know, for nature, and I want to, you know... I'd like to kind of document it as well and, and do like, you know, like my year in beekeeping, do like a little kind of video thing on YouTube, but that's not going to cut it with wife. <laughs> going on holiday in July, we're trying to save desperately. And fucking thing, I got the email today saying it's coming between, they're coming between, I think, 12 and 1. That's, I haven't bought the bees yet. The bees are a fortune. But listen, it's for the environment and it's all it's all going to be good. Wish us luck. Wish us luck. So, I'll tell you what, coming into day's show, it is the end of the month, as you know, and we have Mr. J.J. Campanella. And our main fiction is The Stone Age Gap by Medrith Morgenstern. And this story is original to Starship Sofa. There you go. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now our march ever were ever forward goes to Patreon. Listen, this is <laughs> help us with me bees. We have oh thank you so much. Mario Mini oh, Mario Mario, how will I do this one? Miniaka, no, mini ah, Mario. There's another one that's stumping us. I was doing on a good roll. Mario has supporters. Mario Minasia, Mincia, Mini Miniasia, Mario. Big old glad. Karen Fracas, Karen, thank you so much indeed. Big huge thank you. It means so much. And Andrew Womack, big thank you, lad. Andrew, start if right in there. You get the whole package, sir. Thank you so much. And a big, a big shout out to Lutz K. Kerbs. Krebs. 
Lutz has upped his pledge, which is always a nice little sign there. Up his pledge. Thank you so much, Lutz. Listen, huge thank you. We are on now. Let me just have a look there because I've got to go over to... We had a little kind of... I think someone like fell, fell away from the crowd as well, which is just understandable, do you know what I mean? But we are on 406 now. Our March 2, 500. It, it means the world to us, do you know what I mean? Just like... $2, just banging $2 a month, man. That's that's enough. You know, you get ad-free Starship's over. Do you know what I mean? That's, you know, it's got to be worth something there. And we're coming to the end of actually, so you get, if you're in a week's time or something, you get the whole lot of the, the Silent Invaders, the Silverberg, just for the $5 one. And just I want to just talk about Red Dwarf for a couple of seconds, just because... Most people know there now, this is my kind of comfort blanket with TV. You switch it on and you just fall into that universe. And I'm into kind of season two now of that show. I think we're about number three at this moment in time on show three. And it is now ramping up. Do you know what I mean? The chemistry between Lister and Rimmer is just spot on. And those, like, one-line gags, you know what I mean? Just like the punchline, just... Timing is so it's so spot on. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of it's just the build. It's just layer upon layer of working towards this, like whatever it is, punchline, and then it just works. It just works so much. If you've never watched Red Dwarf, honestly, jump into season two. Miss season one. Season one's all right. You know we're getting going there, but jump into season two. It's on Netflix. I think there's eight. I'm watching via Netflix, and there's eight seasons on there. And then we'll just have to work out how to get it from, from there on onwards. But it's just what a remarkable show. And like I say, I'm just doing like a 15-minute little spurge on each, every fortnight on Patreon. I think that's for $3, you know. So if you're into $3, you know what I mean? $3, man, come on. Get over there on Patreon. See you over there. So, like I say, we have a main fiction today. And it's, you know, it's... It's ours. Starship's over. Big thank you to Jeremy. And we brought on as well Gary, Gary Dowell from Farfetched Fables, the editor over there. We brought in Gary as well, just to keep him a little bit kind of heads up, you know, and took him into the, keep, keep him, keep a hold of him, you know, we don't like to lose kind of the people who kind of make the show. Gary is just a star as well. So big thank you, Gary, for coming over. So like I say, main fiction is The Stone Age Gap by Medrith Morgenstern. The story, I mentioned, because I'm, I'm reading it here, you see. So original, Starship Sova. Medrith is a space princess identity of Medrith Lopez. She spent 20 years living in New York City until fickle circumstances forced her to move to New Jersey suburbs, where she writes about horror being forced to live in the suburbs. She is a second-generation geek and bookworm whose parents kept her at home from school to see Return of the Jedi. What cool mum and dad. Hey, She loves reading, hates driving, and her Patronus is a rainbow unicorn. Medrith has an upcoming story in Grievous Angel and has previously work in published in Fiction Vortex, Gothic Blue Books and Holiday Magic. She lives with her husband, two children and probably some ghosts. Now this story is narrated by K.G. Anderson. K.G. Anderson is a Seattle-based writer, gardener, dancer and cat herder. <laughs> cat. Get out of them! Get in! Get in! Get in! Get in! That's, that's me with the dogs. Get in! 
Her speculative fiction appears in several anthologies and online at Everyday Fiction, Metamorphosis Magazine and a few others. And she was on 179 of Gary's Far-Fetched Fables. There you go. And there's a link on to KG Anderson's site as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Stone Age Gap by Meredith Morgenstern. The subject of my technophobia, as my younger son Jude calls it, racism is what my older son Jacob calls it, comes up again when I'm invited to Jacob's house to watch the opening ceremonies of the 2040 Olympics in Kabul. I thank Jacob for the invitation, but politely turn him down. He knows why. I don't see what point you're trying to make with your boycott. He manages to keep from rolling his eyes. I'm not sure if he's referring to my avoiding the games or his technologically mutated wife. The Olympics are now more inclusive of all sorts of people. It's not inclusive when the athletes are mandated to have tech implants. Upgrades, Jacob corrects. Implants, I ignore. Four years ago, all tech implants were banned. Now suddenly they're mandatory? Feh. I know I sound like a bitter old woman. I don't care. Fine, the kids will miss you. Jacob's playing dirty. With effort, I resist the bait. Tell them Bubby Alicia loves them, and I'll see them next week. I don't need enhanced hearing to catch the word hypocrite as he walks away. To cheer myself up when I get home, I watch the holographic videos of my grandchildren that I keep on my entertainment wall. Luis pings me a few times from the big void. I silence my pinger, lacking the energy to go down to the center today. Luis can wait. He has all eternity. I pour myself a glass of red wine and relax on my couch in front of the wall. Most young people have been enhanced to metabolize alcohol quickly so they don't get drunk. Well, what's the point of that? In three sips, the wine helps calm my nerves from my most recent spat with Jacob. By the time I finish my second glass, I almost don't care anymore. On my entertainment wall, two of my three grandchildren, Melidia, Jacob's oldest, and Seville, Jude's daughter, play a game of tag in a park. They run so fast I have to set the holographic replay time to slow motion so I can see their faces. The more I drink, the slower I have to set the replay. In this way, I can pretend that they are fully human. My daughter-in-law had her uterus enhanced before she and Jacob met. Pregnancy was never a picnic for me, but hell, I'd go through that a million times over before I'd put one of those machines inside me. Her natural blood and tissue were replaced by something cold and plastic and stretchy with a receiver chip able to transmit images and sounds to the fetus's developing brain in order to stimulate hyperintelligence. My grandchildren weren't so much born as they were removed when they finished uploading. When I muttered a joke at the birth about being surprised my grandkids didn't come out already speaking, the doctor replied, we're getting there. I think he was serious. Back when I had my babies, the nurses rubbed vitamin K gel over their eyes, cleaned out their ears and lungs with suction tubes, and then wrapped them up and handed them to me for their first feedings. Luis and I spent countless nights awake with them before they learned how to sleep on their own. When they were hungry, they took my breast. When Jacob's wife gave birth, the nurse technicians dropped pre-programmed nanocells into their ears to regulate their eating and sleeping cycles. They were fed special formula, full of those new hypervitamins, their mother's milk ducts having been taken out along with her womb so they wouldn't engorge and leak after the birth. 
Jacob and his wife didn't circumcise their son Koran six months ago, despite Jacob being half-Jewish through me. Circumcision is considered barbaric. All other enhancements, though, are fine. It's hard sometimes when I look at my grandchildren to remember that they are flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood. The next morning, I wake up on my couch, entertainment wall still on, empty wine bottle on its side on the floor. The news is projecting something about a crackdown on the anti-tech protesters out in California, a group the media and tech snobs like Jacob call throwbacks. Because they want to throw us back to the Stone Age, says Jacob. I shut it off. If my brother-in-law Derek has any real news, he'll let me know, somehow. When I turn on my pinger, there are 17 alerts from Luis. Jacob must have told him about our fight yesterday through his own fancy-schmancy in-home digital consciousness portal. Though I don't want to hear Luis's lecture, I go to the center anyway. It's been a while since we chatted. Maybe he has real news from Derek and the anti-techies out west. On the way out the door, I check my mailbox. Nothing. Ever since the enhancements started, the only way to ensure private communication is hand delivery. Derek and I have enough mutual friends and extended family spread across the country that we send each other letters almost regularly. He and his throwback husband are certain that even hand-delivered letters will be abolished somehow, someday soon. I'm pretty sure they're right. I catch the bus on the next block and tell it my destination. A nice young man stands up and offers me a seat. His eyes glow from within, and a pulsating light at his temple marks an enhanced memory chip implant. I smile my thanks. Sometimes I like being a little old lady. Two other people get off the bus with me at the stop for the center. From the outside, it looks like a regular Brooklyn brownstone building, a place that maybe once housed a family or two. Ivy climbs the walls, the plaster on the steps is chipped away in spots, and the windows desperately need a wash. Inside, though, it's all high-tech. Every surface shines. Every wall lights up. Even the damn floors are glossy because they self-clean as people walk over them. I do the same thing I always do when I get here. Scuff my shoe on the floor, watch the mark disappear before my plain eyes. Scuff, watch, disappear. I do this until the receptionist leads me into a private DC portal. I have some fun news, Miss Perez. Her face beams with pleasure. Next time you come, we'll have upgraded all the portals for two-way speech. I blink to show I don't understand. Instead of typing what you want to say on the keyboard and then having to read Mr. Perez's responses on the screen, you two can just talk to each other. Isn't that great? The glow from her eyes is nearly blinding. Hmm, is all I can think to say. And she claps her hands together. If she were a cartoon, she'd have bubbles of glee coming out of her ears. Our new speech enhancers are specially designed to conform to your loved one's actual voice. Isn't that great? Are you saying that the next time I come here, I won't just be speaking with Luis? I'll actually hear his voice when he answers? Yes! She bounces on her toes, and I know she's dying to jump for joy. Isn't that great? I smile a little bit. I'm not sure I want this. Her smile never falters. You're going to love it, Miss Perez. Everyone does. It's such a comfort. But my husband is dead, Miss. How can you? With all due respect, Miss Perez, your husband isn't really dead. Mr. Perez's consciousness was uploaded into the world-class Dynamic Futures digital consciousness while he was still... I know. 
I turned to my portal and put my fingers on the keyboard, apparently for the last time. She takes the hint and leaves. Luis wastes no time. His words appear on screen as soon as the door to my private portal clicks shut. What happened with Jacob? Luis's words flit onto the screen all at once, no spelling out, no letter by letter. Don't start with me. I didn't come here for a fight. I type fast. Sorry, you're right. How are you? Fine, tired, back hurts, hips ache, all the usual. Why aren't you going to watch the Olympics with Jacob and the grandkids? Well, all right then. You know why not. I don't think it's the new Olympic rules. Admit it. Even in non-bodily form, Luis knows me all too well. I'll admit it to you and whoever else you hang out with in there. Fine, you're right. I'm not going because of that thing. You mean our daughter-in-law? The machine. She has a name, and she's the mother of your grandchildren. Be nice. I am nice, as nice as I can be to a robot. She's not a robot. She's a person. You'll have to get over this someday. Says who? You're not the boss of me. You're stuck inside a machine. Your back wouldn't hurt in here. I'm just saying. I said, don't start with me. You made your choice. I made mine. In here, we could be together again. I really miss you. Damn it, Luis. At least he can't see my eyes water from inside the big void. I went to the doctor a few days ago, still in remission. That's good. For now, would it kill you to stop being so pessimistic for a while? It might. Any news from Derek? His question surprises me, and I have to take a moment to answer. Like me, Derek was never on board with Luis's decision to upload himself once he got sick. Not since the last time I was here, I type. I assume you know all about the crackdowns out there, though? Yes, we are linked into all the major news networks. I pause. I hate it when he refers to himself in there as we, and he knows it. See, even those uploaded to the infinite void can make mistakes. Well, I finally type. Please don't go yet. I'll come back soon, I promise. Fine. Thanks for stopping by. Of course, it'll be weird to hear your voice again next time I come. Progress moves forward, my love, not backwards. What you call progress, I call the dehumanization of mankind. I love you, Snuggles. I love you too, boo-boo. I sign off and shut down the portal, wondering how many other entities in there heard our private nicknames for one another. Outside the center, I wait for the bus and try to remember what it felt like to have real face-to-face -face conversations with Luis. When the bus comes, I get on and find a seat. I stare out the window and work hard to recall the sound of Luis's voice so that next week when I come, it won't jar me too much. Can his voice alone comfort me in my twilight state of not having him around in person anymore, but not really being free of him like a proper widow? The laws say I can marry again. Even Luis has expressed his desire to see me find some sort of companionship. How can I, though, when Luis is still there? 
The elevator of my apartment building greets me when I step inside. Good evening, Miss Perez. Did you have a nice visit with Mr. Perez at the center? I ignore it. One thing that's bothered me the most about all this new connectivity is the lack of privacy. What do you need privacy for unless you have something to hide, Jacob likes to accuse. Is no part of my life my own anymore? At home, I scan the internews for anything of note. An e-zine I subscribe to called the Neo-Luddite has a piece about the lack of long-term studies done on the effects of the nanocells to children's actual brain development. I forward it to Jacob and Jude. Within minutes, Jude e-videos me back with a wink and a smile. Thanks, Mom. He holds up Seville, named for the city where her dads met, and she waves. Jude treats me the same way my generation treated the baby boomers when they got lost trying to use email. Jacob, however, takes my technophobia quite personally. His response takes a little longer to arrive. When it does, it's a full-on rant, accusing me of everything from paranoia to the sabotage of his family. I disconnect in the middle of his tirade and turn on the music station of my entertainment wall instead. The wall is set to default to the oldie station. I shut off my pinger and rock out to Nirvana and Tupac. Two days later, Derek's old college friend Jamie brings a letter to my house. Jamie's been flying back and forth between New York and Los Angeles for months now, ostensibly for work. I disconnect every device I own before opening it. Derek's handwriting gets messier as the letter goes on. We old fogies got so used to our laptops and smartphones and tablets, we nearly forgot how to write by hand until we had to. Derek is still running secret throwback meetings at his husband's office on the UCLA campus, and I don't think he's paranoid when he suspects the government will run them into hiding soon. He denounces the 2040 Olympics as the start of a slippery slope and warns against the new nano-enhancements for children, and he invites me to L.A. to help the throwbacks keep the movement going. He signs off with a request to say hello to his nephews, kiss his grandnieces and grandnephew, and to pass along his love to his brother the next time I chat with Luis at the center. I read it three times and then burn it in my sink. Derek and his whole group may be paranoid, but it doesn't mean they're wrong. I close my eyes and for an exhilarating second imagine myself going out to California to join my brother-in-law and his husband, fight the good fight against the robot uprising, Ha ha. I open my eyes, knowing I'll never go. I can't leave my grandchildren, despite all their mechanical parts and their scary cyborg mother. They need me now more than ever, if only to act as the voice of reason. And once I go out there and ally myself with the throwbacks, I'll have to go completely off-grid, and I'll never be able to communicate with Luis again. Melidia sits on my lap. I play with her tiny fingers. She looks into my eyes and asks me, why they don't glow. <laughs> because, sweetheart, my eyes aren't as pretty as yours are. I smile and tickle her belly. Bubby, you have too many chemicals in you. I can smell them. Jacob and I share a look, both of us accusing one another of terrible deeds. He knows I have to take anti-anxiety medication to see his children. I don't lie about that. These kids are sweet and adorable and curious and energetic and all the other things kids are supposed to be, but they're also enhanced and can see, smell, hear things about me I'd rather keep to myself. Last year, Seville told me she could smell my cancer. Jacob, on the other hand, keeps enhancing his kids in ways I don't think they need. 
His semi-android wife comes into the room. She's human, mother. Jacob spits at me whenever I complain about her. A smug look on her mechanically engineered face. Melidia just had her five senses enhancer installed, she smarms. I wish I could slap her, but I'd probably break my hand. I don't even know if her face is enhanced or not, but the mean-spirited thought gives me a cruel comfort. What on earth for? I nuzzle my granddaughter's neck. Despite the atrocities my son and his robot commit, Melidia still carries that sweet and salty musk all children have. I inhale deeply and remember when Jacob used to smell like this, when he used to be little and sweet enough to crawl into my lap and let me wrap my arms around him. My little Millie is perfect the way she is. Aren't you, Shana Poonam? Melidia giggles and hugs me in a way that melts my heart. I love you, booby, she whispers into my ear. I squeeze her tight. My daughter-in-law smiles even wider. She's about to say something she knows will annoy me. I hate her so much. The new education bill just passed the Senate. President Alvarado is expected to sign it into law this week. No student will be allowed into public school without the full enhancer package. Bubby, your heart is beating really fast. That includes, the robot continues, the five senses enhancer. She tousles her daughter's hair. Right, sweetie? Melidia looks up and beams a gap-toothed smile. I'm sure her adult teeth have been pre-programmed to grow in perfectly straight. Right, Mommy! Jacob at least has the good manners to be embarrassed over his wife's obscene display. I want to scream, but won't do it in front of Melidia, though. Not in front of my sweet-smelling little grandbaby, who has Luisa's green-brown eyes, even if they glow, and my full lips, not while the other one, six-month-old Corin, sleeps in his bassinet nearby, because he's programmed to have a nap. I can't remain entirely silent, though. I rub Melly's back and adopt the casual tone. Have you heard of the Stone Age Gap? The robot is about to speak, and from the look on her face that Melidia can't see, it's going to be nasty. Jacob holds up a hand and talks instead. Is this something you read on one of your technophobe e-zines? As a matter of fact, no, it's not. It's from the Journal of Modern Psychology. I narrow my eyes at the robot. So it's real science. She narrows her gaze right back and folds her arm across her milk-duck-free bosom. So what is this Stone Age gap? Evolutionary biologists say that human brains are not designed for all the technology we've developed in the past 60 years, or even 200 years since the Industrial Revolution. We're not meant to be so tampered with, to have chips and circuits implanted in our brains and bodies. Technology is moving too fast for us, to the detriment of our psychological well-being. Bubby! Melly pulls back and looks me in the eyes so I know she's serious. Brains are inside bodies. They're the same. I push her back against me and continue. The Stone Age Gap says we're basically still cavemen, physically and mentally speaking. And if that's the case, all these so-called enhancements are going to come back to bite us in the ass. Oh, you said the A word, Bubby. Melidia throws her head back and laughs hysterically. Jacob sighs. I didn't hear you complaining about being a cavewoman when they used the pinpoint laser on your tumor. Or when you color your hair, the robot snorts. I'm prepared for this. There's a difference between using modern medicine to give us better quality of life or for personal expression. It's not the same as altering children just so they can go to school. 
It's no different than how we used to have to get immunizations. Jacob gesticulates wildly in the air while he speaks, a habit he gets from his grandmother on Luisa's side. I mean, right? You made me get all those shots so I could go to public school. This is the same. Melidia traces circles on my chest with a tiny finger. It tickles. It's not the same, Jacob. Those vaccines were part of a social health issue here at Immunity. They kept you from getting crappy diseases like measles and polio. I don't see how this full enhancer package is helping to keep any child safe from curable diseases. It helps them learn and grow. The robot has sat down next to Jacob, presenting a knighted front against Jacob's crazy technophobe mother. Did I ever approve of this woman when Jacob was dating her? Did he ever care? They won't cow me, though. I've read every single report on this education bill, on what it means, and every scientific response to it. What else do I have to do with my time when I'm not here or at the center? And then Derek's warning from his most recent letter echoes through my mind. What have he and Ryan discovered? It prevents them from developing at a standard healthy rate and forces them to absorb information faster than their little minds can handle it. The lack of long-term studies. The robot interrupts with a killing blow delivered with all the ceremony and grace of a violent coup d'etat. That's why they need enhancements, to overcome this Stone Age gap. I'm close to tears. What kind of adults is this going to make? What is happening to our humanity? You just told me that it's no longer a parent's choice, not if they want their kid to go to school. The cyborg walks over to me, superficially double-jointed hips for yoga, swaying. You'd better be careful, Mom, or when your time comes, we'll upload you. Whether you want it or not, you won't be able to destroy the big bad machines if you're stuck inside one. Melidia gasps with delight. Then you'll be inside the screen so we can talk to you like we do with Abuelo Luis. I smile sadly and stroke her hair, black like Luis's but soft and fine like mine. No, honey, Bobby isn't going to do that like Abuelo did. Jacob's face is a mask of pent-up anger. I know as soon as his kids go to bed, I'll be getting a loud e-video from him. For now, he simply turns on the entertainment wall. A desert landscape comes on, and serious voices narrate a sporting event. The Olympics! Melidia wiggles off my lap and plants herself on the floor in front of the wall. Are you going to stay to watch, Booby Alicia? I shoot Jacob a dirty look. I'm sorry, Melly. I'm very tired. My back hurts. I'm going to go home now. I'll come see you again soon, okay? I lean down and kiss Corin's forehead. He starts to bring his thumb to his mouth, then jolts and puts his arm back down, all without waking up. His Uncle Jude used to suck his thumb, I mention. Yes, well, we've done away with all those terrible habits. The robot speaks as if it were my fault Jude sucked his thumb 30 years ago. Though Melidia acknowledges that I'm leaving with a backwards wave, her attention is glued to the wall, which shows a pole vaulter launching herself over a mile up into the air. On the bus on the way home, I can't stop trembling. Something about Melidia's new enhancers and the schools now requiring them rubs me wrong, even more wrong than usual. I lean against the person next to me and talk into the bus's portal. I've changed my mind. Drop me at the Dynamic Futures Center, please. The center is open 24 hours a day. The receptionist from two days ago isn't there, thankfully. 
The one on duty tonight has been enhanced for privacy intact, so he leaves me alone after giving me my private portal number. Don't let her get to you. Louise's words flash onto the portal screen. As usual, Jacob got to him first. I guess the center hasn't upgraded yet, like that last receptionist threatened. I'm too relieved to hide it, and I burst into tears. Honey, I know you're there. I can't even type an answer. Does he really need me to type it out anyway? Or can his consciousness, which is now supposedly infinite thanks to the freedom of being without a physical body, see and hear me every time I speak into a portal or use my internews? Did the elevator in Jacob's building talk to him already? Tell him my vital stats as I left their apartment. Telling him how my heart raced and my blood pressure shot up and my throat closed with unshed tears, just like when he was alive and I got upset. I said and sob. Unlike when he was alive, he can't pull me close so I can cry into his neck and feel his strong arms around me. I used to smudge mascara onto his nice white undershirts when I cried. She didn't mean it, you know. I sniffle, but snot runs out of my nose anyway. You have your will. I wrote it, remember? It's ironclad. They can't upload you against your wishes, even though I'll miss you. It's not that. Well, not only that. The grandchildren will be fine. I promise. I know you are like super smart in there or whatever, but even you can't possibly predict the future. Listen, I and several others have run through millions of possible outcomes for the new enhancer packages on the young ones. Only 3% of the scenarios were their negative long-term consequences. I don't even know where to start with that. Is that supposed to make me feel better? What kinds of negative long-term consequences? And don't you think even 3% is too high for our grandchildren? I'm not sure how much to tell him about Derek's letter. Whenever I type to Luis, will be seen by who knows who. I settle on typing. Derek is really worried. I can almost hear him sigh through the portal. Probable negative long-term consequences include insomnia, increased anxiety, elevated blood pressure, and increased risk of suicide due to early-onset burnout. Are you fucking kidding me with this? What if Melidia or Corin or Seville kill themselves from this early-onset burnout? Will 3% be acceptable to you then? Honey, if this is true, why haven't I seen any articles about it? Have you told anyone in the actual scientific or medical community about this? You do realize the irony of reading an e-zine called The Neo-Luddite through the internews, right? Don't change the subject. Fine. We've told them. Several professionals at schools like Oxford and Yale are conducting independent studies to confirm what we've already figured out. No one seems to think 3% is anything to worry about. Satisfied? My crying has turned to angry tears. But 3% of how many children is that higher than the usual suicide rate, or is it in addition to? I guarantee the parents of those 3% won't think this is nothing to worry about. Will you be okay in there if it's one of our grandchildren? You're hysterical. Go calm down with a glass of wine and come back tomorrow. You're right. I'm done here. This was a mistake. I must have been stupid to think I'd get sympathy from a ghost in a machine. I miss you so much. If you were in here, none of this would bother you. She wouldn't bother you. Derek and his hubby say hi. I shut off the portal and storm out, 
not even looking at the scuff marks I make on the self-cleaning floor. At home, I rush to my study, tear a sheet of paper off a notepad, and scribble out a note to Derek. Dear Derek, I'm on my way, Alicia. I check in with Jamie through my entertainment wall. She hasn't left for California yet, so we use our code words to arrange an in-person meeting so I can give her the note to carry. Once that's done, I switch off all my electronics, even my pinger from the center. Maybe somewhere in his infinite wisdom, Luis can find a way to forgive me for leaving him like this. On my way to my bedroom to pack, I stop in my tracks. Taking this step means never seeing Jacob or Jude again, never seeing my sweet grandchildren again. I won't get to watch them grow up, strange as it will be with their tech enhancements. I won't be there to tether them to a non-tech reality, to act as their voice of reason. And Jacob... My chest tightens with longing. Though we've rarely seen Ida, I I know he still loves me. I'm his mother. I love him no matter what. But if I leave now, will that push him over the edge? Am I really making anything better by running away to join forces with those who intend to shut all this down? What if we do something wrong? What if whatever Derek and Ryan have planned winds up doing more harm than good? What if... I don't get to finish the thought because I step weird and trigger my sciatica pain and it shoots down my leg and buckles my knees with the intensity. And as I drop to the floor, a new pain, hot and bright, cuts into my head. And then there's nothing but blackness. Short-term memory comes back first and I finish my interrupted instinct to brace my fall to the kitchen floor. If my arms move at all, I can't feel them. The second thing to return is awareness, or rather, a lack of awareness. I can't feel my body. No pain in my back, no pain in my head, from where I must have hit it when I fell. The third thing is shame. Oh, what a stupid, cliche, old lady thing to do, fall down and hurt myself. I open my eyes, or maybe I don't. Everything around me is black and empty, like that feeling when you first turn off a light at night. I try to call out, but I can't tell if my mouth opens or if I make a sound. A memory of long ago, a thing I hadn't thought about in years and decades, pushes itself to the forefront of my consciousness. Of that time I read A Wrinkle in Time to Jacob and Jude, and of that description of Meg Murray tessering, that void, that emptiness, that distinct lack of her own body, even as she was awake and aware. I want to panic, but my body won't respond. I want to look down at my body, but I can't. A light blinding in its intensity, and my instinct is to cover my eyes with a hand, but I have no hand. Jacob, Melidia, and Jacob's wife all materialize before me, but not in any physical way that I can wrap my mind around. They're like holograms, but if holograms had substance, like ghosts. Bubby Alicia! Melidia's glowing eyes are even brighter with tears, so she can still cry then, for now. Mom, Jacob's face is pale, moist with sweat, stained with tears. Oh, thank goodness, why didn't you tell me? I want to ask him, tell you what? But I still can't make words or sounds happen. Jacob's wife has that vicious, smug smile all over her stupid face. Yes, dearest mother-in-law, why didn't you tell us that you changed your will to be uploaded into the D.C. like Luis? If I still had a heart, it would pound right now. Instead, the memory of fear collides with my lack of corporeal form and makes me dizzy. If that's something I can still feel, my brain refuses to grasp this new reality, even as I am forced to confront what has happened to me. 
Louise told us your will was ironclad, but I guess iron isn't a very strong metal, is it? The urge to reach up and slap her, choke her, shove my hand over her mouth, and shut her up pulls at my mind until I feel that if I had lungs, I'd be breathless. Do I still have a face? Can they see me? What do they see? Melidia hugs me from her side, a formless thing that feels like I'm missing a step while going downstairs. Well, Jacob smiles. He hasn't smiled at me in a very long time. It's sincere, his smile, crinkling the corners of his eyes where he hasn't yet enhanced himself to stop aging. At least now you can watch over the kids like you wanted to, right? Indeed, his wife smirks. You have all eternity now to fight against technology from the inside. Almost like a sunrise, things around me begin to light up, appear out of the darkness. Or maybe I'm creating them? Grass under my feet, green and perfect like the big lawns on Prospect Park after the spring thaw. Trees offering the shade from a brilliant yellow sun in a cloudless sky as blue as light through a sapphire. A gentle breeze tickles my arms, and I look down and notice my body no longer pudgy or sagging with age, but tight and fit like it was before I had babies. I have no pain, and even as I think this, the very memory of pain fades away like a forgotten dream. And there, off in the distance, is Luis. There is no mistaking his shape or his stride. Without thinking, I run to him. We collide in an embrace, and he lifts me off my feet, swings me around, stronger than he ever was in life. Then he sets me down on my feet, and I remember what Jacob's wife said. And I beat at Luis's chest with my fists. How could you? How could you change my will without my consent? You know how I feel about this. You know. Shh. He takes my hands and kisses my knuckles. I didn't. It was an error. The words take a few seconds to process through my awareness. An error? I don't know if I have a face, if he can read me still, or if this is all filtering to him through the black matter of the digital consciousness. I thought my will was ironclad. You made it. I thought these things were beyond errors. By the time I finish, I feel like my voice is high-pitched and hysterical, but I have no way of knowing whether Luis hears it that way or not. He tries to hold me again, but I'm so full of rage that with a thought I turn myself into steam and float away. Luis, of course, can follow me, and he does. Despite our nebulous forms, he continues to talk to me. Your apartment notified the paramedics of your fall. Someone must have hit the wrong button on the remote AI interface or used the wrong patient for a bioscan. But as soon as I became aware of you here, I focused myself over... I become a rocket and fire myself up, up, up. The sky never darkens into the black of space like it did on all those space shuttles I watched as a kid. Luis follows. Alicia, please try to make the best of it. At least we're together again. I continue to run away from him, and he finally gives up. probably realizes we have all eternity to work this out. As I move around the digital consciousness, I know I'm not alone. Little bit by little bit, I can sense others around me, seeing me, watching me, knowing every thought I have as soon as I have it, just as I see what they see, know what they know. It comes on me quickly enough to be disconcerting, but gradually enough to keep me from going insane. And I guess that's part of the setup in here. Soon enough, I could feel my brain expanding, or what I guess is my mind. It expands with knowledge like a balloon, filling up with ideas and numbers and names, and a vague white noise I can only think to call gut instinct. It's crowded. It's uncomfortable. 
It's horrifying and splendid and terrible in a way that feels too big for me. In high school, I was always bad at math. I remember listening to my trigonometry teacher talk about things that felt as foreign to me as if she were speaking Martian and how I would get these headaches from my poor brain trying to cram in all this information that it wasn't wired to know. I can't take a deep breath and relax in here because I have no lungs. I can't close my eyes. I can't think of something else and tune out. I can't put my hands over my ears. It's all here, right here, the breadth and width of human knowledge crammed and funneled into my mind at a pace I can never hope to keep up with. I'm about to scream as loudly as I can, as much as I can, when Luis waves and catches my attention. Once he has it, he points to something. I bring myself to him, floating, falling, focusing, whatever it is we do in here. I have hands again. He takes one and guides me to a bench, because we're back in a park now, only we're not alone. Running towards us, arms outstretched, are Melidia and Seville, my granddaughters. The only word I can think to say is, how? Now that we have taken corporeal form, Louise puts a hand on my knee, a familiar gesture I'd forgotten over the years. It's part of their enhancement. They can tap into the D.C. anytime. I drop down from the bench onto my knees, the impossibly green grass cushioning my fall. I don't know what to expect to feel, but when those girls crash into me in a massive hug, they're real enough that I tumble backwards. My laughter's real. Their surprisingly strong arms around me are real. The smell of their fruity shampoos in their hair, the soft dresses they wear, it's, it's all so real. When they finally step away and we all catch our breaths, I notice their eyes are normal, not glowing. They both inherited Louise's eyes, mostly green with a ring of brown around the pupils. Jacob's and Jude's eyes. Bubby, Alicia, Melidia's smile is so wide I can see her molars. I'm so glad you changed your mind and got uploaded like Abuelo Luis. When we're all done hugging and smiling and I can tear my gaze from their perfect little faces, I go and sit in the shade of a perfectly formed old oak tree. My granddaughters make themselves comfortable in my lap. All I have to do is think the thought and a storybook is in my hand. With one around each child, I open the book's hard leather binding and read to them the way I've always wanted to do, and they listen to every word. There are no interruptions, no preternatural observations of my health, and no fights with my son or daughter-in-law. While I read, I pretend this is real, that this is how it will always be, because it will. Fighting my new digital life takes too much energy, energy I need to block out wave after wave of new information constantly crashing against my mind. I'm so tired, and I've been struggling against this for so long, it's driven a wedge between me and my oldest child. It's created mountains of distance between me and my grandbabies. What's the point anymore? I'm here now. The girls are on my lap. They feel real enough. A digital tear leaks out of my eye. And without looking to see it, Lydia reaches up and wipes it away. There you go, Medrith. Thank you so much. Honestly, letting Starship Sofa play that for the first time. Oh, thank you. Thank you indeed. That's just lovely. And KJ Anderson, big hugs. Oh, lovely. Thank you so much. God, I wish I could narrate. Not a hope, by the way. Not a hope. So... Big deep breath, end of the month. Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. Jim, sir! Greetings and Strombolian magnifications, my corpusculently radiant listeners. 
and welcome to this March 2018 Science News Update. I'm your host for this dotard, a pouring science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. So, okay, I've tried really hard, and I could not find this month any idiot scientist that deserves an award. I think this is probably a good thing, whether it decreases my entertainment value or not. But uh, I'm sure there'll be somebody next month who's an idiot. Anyway, let's talk science. First story of the night. If you were an alien living on a planet in Proxima Centauri about a year ago, then you are quite literally toast at this point. Proxima Centauri is Earth's nearest planet-hosting neighbor, and uh, it released a gigantic flare last year at this time, if you missed the news. And that would have been bad news for any potential life on that star's planet, Proxima B. The star got about a thousand times brighter over ten seconds before dimming again. That can best be explained by an enormous stellar flare, says astronomer Dr. Meredith McGregor of the Carnegie Institution for Science. This was written up in the February 26th issue of Astrophysical Journal Letters. Because Proxima b is so much closer to its star than Earth is to the Sun, the star would have blasted Proxima b with about 4,000 times more radiation than Earth typically gets from any of uh, Sol's flares. McGregor says, quote, If flares like this are at all frequent from Proxima Centauri, then any exoplanet that is too nearby is likely not to be in the best shape, unquote. I've chatted about Proxima B in the past on Science Updates because it is one of the most sought-after sites for finding life outside the solar system. It's just four light years away, and it has a mass of about the same as the Earth and probably has temperatures suitable enough for liquid water. But its star is an M-class dwarf. That's a class of small, dim star, which is notoriously prone to flares that could rip away a planet's atmosphere. McGregor and her colleagues reanalyzed data from a recent study led by astronomer Dr. Guillaume Anglada of the Institute of Astrophysics of Andalusia. Anglada had observed Proxima Centauri and saw extra light that he interpreted as a ring of dust, quote-unquote. However, Anglada had averaged the amount of light over a full 10 hours of observations, and that would have smeared out any short-term changes in the star's brightness, like a huge flare. When McGregor's team reanalyzed the data, they found that all the excess light came from the same two-minute period on March 24th. McGregor says a massive flare explains all that extra light, and none of it was masquerading as a quote-unquote glittering dust ring. For the next story, why don't we stay in space and get an update of the famous Drake equation. Dr. Claudio Grimaldi and colleagues from Federal Polytechnical School of Lausanne in Switzerland published their updated calculation of the Drake equation recently in the online journal Archive. And they have concluded that if signals from an alien civilization ever reach Earth, odds are that the aliens will already be dead by the time we hear it. 
great. How cheery that is. So much for half the glass being full. I guess in this case, there's no glass at all. So in an effort to update the 1961 Drake equation, which estimates the number of detectable intelligent civilizations in the Milky Way, Grimaldi calculated the area of the galaxy that should be filled with alien signals at any given time. That actually sounds more promising than it turned out to be. In fact, Grimaldi's team actually included Dr. Frank Drake, who now is a professor emeritus at the SETI Institute in California and also the University of California. So Grimaldi is probably about as accurate as he's going to be here. The new calculation assumes technologically savvy civilizations born and die at a constant rate. It also assumes that when a civilization dies out and stops broadcasting, the signals it had sent continue traveling like concentric ripples in a pond. And part of the Milky Way should be filled with these ghost signals. Grimaldi reports that if a civilization lasts less than 100,000 years, the time it takes light to cross the galaxy, then the odds of the signals reaching the Earth while the civilization is still broadcasting are pretty small. Humans, for example, have been transmitting radio waves for only about 80 years. So our radio waves now cover less than one one-thousandth of the percent of the Milky Way. Grimaldi says, quote, If the civilization emitted from the other side of the galaxy, when the signal arrives here, the civilization will already be gone by our calculations, unquote. Surprisingly, the team also calculated the average number of ET signals crossing Earth at any given time should equal the number of civilizations currently transmitting, even if the civilizations we hear from aren't the same ones presently broadcasting. Grimaldi is now working on a paper about what it means that we've heard absolutely nothing so far. So what do I think it means? Well, my first thought is they simply are not out there. Maybe it's like the lyrics of the Red Dwarf theme song. We're all alone, more or less. Hey, humans have been told over and over again since the European Renaissance that we are not so special, and the universe does not revolve around us. And Darwin and Freud made it abundantly clear that we could be knocked even further off our high horse as humans. But what if they're wrong? What if life really is unique here on Earth? Or what if intelligent life is even more rare than the Drake equation suggests? I know the Drake equation says otherwise, and that there should be a ton of life out there, but hey, where is it? Maybe it's not there. Or perhaps the aliens are purposely ignoring us and keeping hidden, as suggested by more than a few SF authors? Frankly, if they're keeping hidden, I really can't blame them, given half of what I see of the human race. And perhaps Grimaldi's next paper will clarify life, the universe, and everything. But I seriously doubt it. Next story is a topic near and dear to my heart. Sleep. By the way, a brief update on my sleep apnea, since I still get emails about this, even though I last mentioned it about a year ago. I have ameliorated much of the issues with sleep apnea by getting a special pillow that keeps me sleeping at an angle of about 40 degrees. And that angle puts less pressure on my soft palate, and I guess, according to my wife, I seem to be sleeping without gasping for air every few minutes, like a beached fish uh, gasping for water. 
yippee ki So anyway, getting back to science, this new story was published on Valentine's Day in the American Journal of Anthropology by Dr. Charles Nunn of Duke University. It turns out that humans sleep less per day than any other primate. A large comparison of primate sleep patterns finds that most primate species get anywhere between 9 and 15 hours of shut-eye daily, while humans average just about 7. An analysis of several lifestyle and biological factors predicts that humans should be getting about 9.5 hours of sleep. And even though we don't sleep enough, most of the primates in the study typically sleep as much as the paper's statistical models predict they should. The paper says that two long-standing features of human life had contributed to unusually short sleep times. First, when humans descended from the trees to sleep on the ground, individuals probably had to spend more time awake to guard against predator attacks than they did when they were safely up in the trees. Second, humans have faced intense pressure to learn and teach new skills and to make social connections at the expense of sleep. As sleep declined, Rapid eye movement, REM sleep, as you all know, which is linked to learning and memory, came to play an outsized role in human slumber. And non-REM sleep accounts for an unexpectedly small share of human sleep now, even though it may also aid memory. Nunn says, quote, It's pretty surprising that non-REM sleep time is so low in humans, but something had to give as we slept less. Our primate relatives have much more non-REM sleep than we do on average, unquote. Nunn used two statistical models to calculate expected daily amounts of sleep for each of the species. For 20 of those species, enough data existed to estimate expected amounts of REM and non-REM sleep. And estimates of all sleep times relied on databases of previous primate sleep findings largely involving captive animals wearing electrodes that measure brain activity during slumber. To generate predicted sleep values for each primate, the researchers consulted earlier studies of links between sleep patterns and various aspects of primate biology, behavior, and environments. So based on these factors, the researchers predicted humans should sleep an average of nine and a half hours every day. And again, humans sleep an average of about seven and even less in some groups, the 36% shortfall between the predicted and the actual sleep is far greater than any other primate in the study. Nunn estimates that people now spend an average of 1.56 hours of sleep time in REM, about as much as the models predict should be spent in that sleep phase. An apparent rise in the proportion of human sleep devoted to REM apparently resulted mainly from a hefty decline in that non-REM sleep that I mentioned earlier. And by their calculations, people should spend an average of 8.42 hours in non-REM sleep daily, whereas the actual figure is only about five and a half hours. So why is this lack of sleep such a worry? Well, it may be one reason, as some people have suggested, that Alzheimer's and similar neurodegenerative diseases have started to occur as we age. If you remember, I explained last month about the specialized lymph system that cleans the brain as we sleep. I explained at that time that the glymph system, as it's called, can become more efficient with a bit of alcohol every day. Well, to put it simply, 
If we don't sleep enough, our brains do not get the full cleansing benefits of the glymph system. This may be one explanation why neurofibrillary tangles arise more often in Homo sapiens than any other primate. This hypothesis may also explain why those with sleep apnea are more prone to neurodegenerative diseases than the general population. They're getting even less sleep than the average human. This is quite eye-opening and quite depressing at the same time. Next story. A world's record. So how deep do you think that you can find water in the Earth's crust? I would bet that your guess is wrong, unless you're a geologist who specializes in stuff like that. I mean, my guess was off by magnitudes. But, quote, deep within the hot interior of the Earth, ice lurks, unquote. That's from the paper. My immediate response when I read that was, come on, that's nonsense. Everything I know about geology says that the farther down you go, the hotter it gets, right? So what's this nonsense about ice deep in the earth? Well, it turns out that I'm pretty darned ignorant when it comes to such things. Yeah, there's ice down there. A form of supercompact ice has been found embedded inside diamonds, and it offers the first direct clue that there is abundant water more than 600 kilometers in the mantle. Yes, 600 kilometers. That's about 380 miles for all of you Americans out there. Dr. Oliver Shawner of the University of Nevada and his colleagues reported this on March 8th in the journal Science. This ice, identified by its crystal structure, called Ice 7, doesn't exist at Earth's surface. It only forms at pressures greater than 24 billion pascals, corresponding to depths of about 610 to 800 kilometers. Its presence in diamonds suggests that there is water-rich fluid in the transition zone between the upper and lower mantle, and even into the top of the lower mantle. Just as a side note before I go on, I kind of freaked out when I first read this because my ability to read Roman numerals has always kind of stank. And I thought the paper was about Ice-9. For those of you not familiar with Ice-9, it's a fictional material that appears in Kurt Vonnegut's novel Cat's Cradle. Ice-9 is described as a polymorph of water, which instead of melting at uh, zero degrees Celsius melts at 45 degrees Celsius, and when Ice-9 comes into contact with liquid water below 45 degrees Celsius, it acts as kind of a seed crystal and causes the solidification of the entire body of water, and then that quickly crystallizes into more Ice-9. As people are mostly water, Ice-9 kills nearly instantly when ingested or brought into contact with soft tissue and close to the bloodstream. You can see why I kind of freaked out when I misread the story. Anyway, the story is about Ice 7, not the nasty homicidal ice. So, how did water get down hundreds of kilometers? Well, when slabs of the Earth's crust sink into the mantle below, they drag ocean water with them. How deep the slabs actually sink has been a long-standing question. Researchers have suspected that abundance aqueous fluid exists in the deep mantle, moved down there by slabs bearing 
water-rich minerals that shed their water when they reach the transition zone. But scientists have not previously found direct evidence of that water being there. That's where the diamonds come in. Diamonds form at high temperatures and pressures, crystallizing in pockets rich in the mineral carbonate before being carried to the surface with erupting magma. I learned that when I was a kid from a Superman comic where the Man of Steel made a diamond from the graphite from his mechanical pencil. He super-squeezed and blew superheated air into his hand to do it. Anyway, as the diamond crystals form, they can enclose tiny amounts of fluid or rock from their surroundings. And these impurities represent tiny capsules of mantle. Diamond inclusions are the only direct window that scientists have into the fabric of Earth more than a kilometer beneath the surface. Schauner wasn't looking for ice in his study. He was hunting for signs of a molecular form of carbon dioxide that uh, could reveal clues to the cycling of carbon from the slabs into the mantle. He used an array of techniques to study all this to identify the inclusions within the diamonds. One of the diamonds was from China and two from South Africa. And instead of carbon dioxide, his group sought the telltale patterns of water in the X-ray scattering that passed through the diamond. And that pattern pointed to ice seven. The presence of that extremely high pressure form of ice was a powerful clue to the depth at which the diamond must have formed. Schauner explains in this very long quote why water deep in the earth is so important. Quote, Water-rich fluids deep in the mantle could be important for driving the circulation that fuels the movements of tectonic plates and eruptions of volcanoes. The presence of water can make it easier for rocks to melt by lowering the melting point of hot rock under pressure. And fluids can help redistribute heat within the mantle. What's more, some large heat-producing radioactive elements like potassium, thorium, and uranium, don't easily fit into the rigid crystalline structure of minerals and prefer melted rock. You just need a little bit of fluid and they move into the melt, unquote. Next story. Is it possible to reconstruct somebody's face based on their genetics? Well, Dr. Seth Weinberg of the University of Pittsburgh and colleagues say maybe. This group has identified 15 genes that determine our facial features. And if they're right about these genes and their effects, just imagine. Doctors could use DNA for skull and facial reconstructive surgery. Forensic examiners could sketch a perpetrator's face on the basis of DNA retrieved from a crime scene. Historians would be able to reconstruct facial features using DNA from the past. Guess we're looking at you, Bilbo Baggins. Anyway, the study entitled Genome-Wide Mapping of Global to Local Genetic Effects on Human Facial Shape appeared this month in the journal Nature Genetics. Weinberg states, quote, Genome-wide association scans of complex multipartite traits like the human face typically use pre-selected phenotypic measures. Here, we report a data-driven approach to phenotyping facial features at multiple levels of organization, allowing for an open-ended description of facial variation while preserving statistical power. 
In a sample of 2,329 people of European ancestry, we identified 38 loci, 15 of which replicated in an independent European sample of 1,719 people. Unquote. Well, it seems that all the replicated loci, the genes, highlighted distinctive patterns of global to local genetic effects on facial shape. And uh, they apparently were enriched for active chromatin elements in the human cranial neural crest cells, suggesting an early developmental origin of the facial variation. These results have implications for studies of facial genetics and other complex morphological traits. Weinberg further states, quote, We're basically looking for needles in a haystack. In the past, we would select specific features, including the distance between the eyes or the width of the mouth. We would then look for a connection between this feature and other genes. This has already led to the identification of a number of genes, but of course the results are limited because only a small set of features are selected and tested, unquote. In the current study, each face was automatically subdivided into smaller modules. Next, they examined whether any locations in the DNA matched those modules. This modular division technique, as he calls it, made it possible for the first time to check for an unprecedented number of facial features. The scientists were able to identify 15 locations in the DNA, as I said, and the Stanford team found out that genomic loci linked to these modular facial features are active when our face develops in utero. Seven of the 15 of those genes are linked to the nose, and it should become much easier in the future to determine the shape of the nose of some unknown person than previously. And this has always been a problem in the past, because especially if you've just got a skull, how do you determine what the shape of the nose is? You can't. It's very, very difficult, because the nose is made of tissue and doesn't stick around like the skull does. Next story. Can simply standing instead of sitting help you lose weight? Well, yeah, apparently it can. And you don't even have to exercise. In a study last month, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Dr. Claes Olson from the University of Gothenburg and uh, colleagues said that uh, standing, at least in mice, activates what the authors call an internal bathroom scale, quote-unquote. By this they mean that there is some sort of mechanism in your body that detects changes in weight and then regulates your weight by sending signals to the brain to either eat more or eat less. Yes, all that weight pushing down onto your feet is detected and acted upon by your body. I find this absolutely amazing. The last time an entirely new body fat regulatory process was identified was way back in 1994, and that was with the discovery of leptin. You, you may remember that leptin is a hormone secreted by fat cells, and increasing the number of fat cells causes an increase in the amount of leptin, which then travels to the hypothalamus to signal the brain to eat less. Despite its involvement in body weight regulation and the years of research, the discovery of leptin hasn't really led to any new obesity treatments. Olson says, quote, Very often, several different mechanisms work together to regulate a physiological process, and it seems as if leptin by itself cannot cure human obesity, unquote. Yeah, thank you, Clays, no kidding. <laughs>
it seems that Olson wanted to determine what additional mechanisms besides leptin regulate fat, mass, and body weight. And to research this, he turned to mice and rats with diet-induced obesity. He implanted capsules weighing 15% of the animal's body weight into their abdomens and empty capsules into control animals. And surprisingly, the body fat of the animals walking around carrying the weighted capsules decreased by the exact same amount as the capsules that were added. He and his group were surprised that the weight loss had nothing to do with leptin. Further experiments show that the mechanism is regulated by a unique load-sensing cell type, the osteocytes, located in foot bones. Previous research suggested that osteocytes regulate bone mass by sensing short-term high-impact changes in body weight. And Olson hypothesized that sustained, slightly increased loading also might exert its effect on body weight by the osteocytes. And the team repeated the experiments, and this time they added weight capsules to mice without osteocytes. And these mice didn't change their eating patterns to account for the extra weight, confirming a role for osteocytes in body weight regulation. Osteocytes may not be the only players in the body's weight-sensing capabilities. Olson and colleagues believe there's also a biological sensor that depends on the osteocytes, and they're presently hunting for that sensor and hope to soon identify it. Olson cautioned that there are other factors to consider before we all start standing to lose weight. For example, body weight fluctuates depending upon the existence of homeostatic body weight regulation. Olson says, quote, homeostatic mechanisms try to keep the phenotype constant, but like for most diseases, the different homeostatic mechanisms are not perfect in all subjects as a result of environmental or genetic differences. We don't even know yet whether this homeostatic system even exists in humans. We hope so, but we don't know yet. Unquote. All right. Well, this last story of the night should be giving Smokey the Bear sleepless nights because it is quite nightmarish. In fact, Alfred Hitchcock would have loved this one. It has now been confirmed that birds of prey in Australia are not only responsible for the spread of wildfires, but they're doing it deliberately. This means that humans are not unique in having harnessed fire and were perhaps even beaten out by these avian arsonists. This is not the first time that evidence that uh, raptors might have been harnessing the red flower for their own use. Uh, back in 2016, ornithologist Bob Gottsford reported multiple accounts that both black kites and brown falcons were spreading wildfires in northern Australia, something that slotted in with indigenous aboriginal knowledge about the birds. But many other experts were skeptical about the behavior. It seemed obvious that the birds were spreading fires. However, lots of scientists simply didn't believe that there was any intent behind it and that it was nothing more than accidental on the raptor's behalf. In response to this criticism, Gosford spent last year collecting even more eyewitness accounts of birds of prey deliberately carrying burning sticks and embers to settle light other bits of grassland. In his latest paper, which was published in the Journal of Ethnobiology last month, Gosford details another 20 eyewitness reports of this behavior, as well as adding the whistling kite 
to the select group of fire-starting birds. It's thought that the birds are taking advantage of lightning strikes that spark wildfires in northern Australia. This is a natural process that frequently occurs, and the plants and landscape are well adapted to the blazes that ravage the area, just like, what, uh, California. The raptors have been observed picking up burning twigs from these blazes and then flying up to 50 meters away to unburnt patches of grassland and forest where they deliberately drop them, spreading the fire. Following this, the birds will then sit at the advancing edge of the fire and wait for small mammals and reptiles and amphibians and insects to flee the flames, picking off the hapless critters as they make a run for it. This latest paper has collated a whole raft of accounts. One such report comes from a former firefighter, Dick Eusen, who was fighting a fire near Cockadoo in the Northern Territory. He recounts how, quote, We were tackling one, then realized another had spread out the other side of the road. We found a whistling kite sitting in a tree holding a smoking stick. During the call out, we had to extinguish a total of seven new fires. All of them were started by birds. All right, forgive me for the terrible Australian accent. Oh, that was awful. Anyway, the behavior could explain why fires just suddenly appear to jump fire breaks. And the researchers are now asking for similar reports from other parts of the world, like Africa and the Americas, to further our understanding of both humanity's relationship with fire and the historic spread of savannas. Wow, I see a sequel at this point to Hitchcock's thriller, The Birds. We can call it Angry Birds with Fire. Or maybe not. All right. That's all for me for now. As always, take care. Stand up if you're sitting at your computer. Keep away from Ice Nine. Keep watching the skies for birds brandishing burning sticks. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Always a pleasure, my good man. Always a pleasure. I was, I've linked to Jim's site, which I do all every time there. But uh, this time, you just look. and he, Jim's got the... He's organized. He's got them all kind of there from way back in 2008. Every show, every month, there just some work on in there, Jim. Thank you so much indeed. So that is Starship Sova. What number was it? 530. Put to bed, look it. Only one clap this time. You know what I mean? Cutting it out. So bees, yes. <laughs> Two hives coming. Yee, well. I've ordered the I've ordered the um, the bees, but I haven't gotten them yet. You you kind of put a deposit down, and you get a what's called or you can there's different things, but you can get a, a nucleus, a nuke of bees, which is about four frames in this little box with a queen bee that's in like a little little box all of her own, and you you pop them in, and mm, I'm not I'm not scared of bees. Just, I'm wary of them. You know what I mean. There's a hurdle to start with, you know what I mean? And I'm lucky where I live, the, the intention is to put them in the garden. <laughs> Next to where the wife hangs the washing out. <laughs> I haven't really thought this through at all, but I've got this, 
I've got this ambition, this desire to kind of nature and, you know what I mean, I do the allotment and if worse comes to worse, I, I think I can put them in the allotment. But the idea is eventually, you know, is to kind of take them out and about and, you know, put them on the kind of heathers and the moors around here as well. You know what I mean? So we'll see. I, I've got to get over the kind of scared of the bees first. You know what I mean? I'm just wrapped in. Now, apparently... Why you see all white? You know, like beekeepers have these kind of big white, you know, like the hoods with the, the, the visors and all the kind of, it's all like a white overall or a white jacket. Why is it white? Do you know why it's white? And you don't wear dark colours when you go next to bees. Learn this, because bees think dark is a bear. They, oh, ah, freaking clapped again. There you go. But that makes it make sense. And... Never open your beehive. You know, the amount of kind of videos I've been watching on bees and, and books read, <laughs> just obsessed with it. Never open a beehive in kind of dark, rainy, because you obviously get the bees wet and condensation kills bees, but they don't like that. You know, they don't like dark, you know, nice summer day when they're all out and about kind of foraging is the best time to open it up. And the more I read about it, just what I'm picking up is you will lose hives over winter. That's the thing, you know what I mean? So that's why I've ordered two. <laughs> I'm just trying to put things in order so I can explain to Melanie that. <laughs> We're a little bit, the holiday fun's a little bit short because we've got these two four-foot beehives coming. But we will lose bees and it's always best to have two so you can kind of Keep an eye on both and and judge, you know, the differences of, of the different hives and you know things like that. So I will, I'm, 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 I want to do something on, you know, YouTube as like a, you know a weekly little kind of five minute update. Just it's more for me, just to you know see how it goes and whether I'll do that or not. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? And you will get stung. Apparently, that's just the nature of the beast. Do you know what I mean? I don't think that will bother us. Do you know what I mean? I got stung once when I was a kid. You know, we're not a kid. But we'll, I was working. I was, I was working for the War Authority. That's right. But I was doing. Oh, I was cut. I must have been just a kid at the time. You know what I mean? I would say twenty-three, something like that. And I was cutting grass from a sewage works, which was next to a cat, like a castle. And you had one of these big grass cutters that you pull a lever and it goes by itself. And so it has a cut about say three foot wide. You know, the big one. These big. You know, you see the council driving on bank sides with them. You know, it's like a, a one that went itself. And I ran over a wasp's nest. And, hey, it honestly felt like a match being lit and stuck straight. You know how that kind of, you, you light a, a cigarette match, you know, like them matches, and just stuck on your skin when it's kind of just first fizzing away in flames. <gasps> and I, it was all over, you know. There was a couple on my head. There was one few on my backside. They were on my chest and all. I took myself off to hospital. <laughs> I just said, come on, man, it's bloody... But by the time I got home and then walked to the hospital, do you know what I mean? It was like, I was scared, to be quite honest. But it was like, I must have been about four hours later and I said if I was going to get a shock, this anaphylactic shock, it would have happened within seconds probably. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Not four hours. <laughs> Go on, sunshine, get away. I'm wasting my time. So keep it... <laughs> Anybody's got any bees or has had experience of them, you know what I mean? Just let us know. Don't forget, come on, Patreon, $2, $3, $5 will get you now nearly the whole Spielberg, I was going to say. Oh, I've had, I've had bad comments on, on that uh, Ready Player One, which is such a shame. I was so looking forward to that, but not put me off. I will go there. But I will see you next week. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network.
dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.